Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Before we get started, we want to tell you about a special event we're hosting in Philadelphia on October 17th, 2019. Behavioral Grooves is celebrating our 100th episode with a special live podcast from the Pennsylvania Academy for the Performing Arts, with doors opening at 6 p.m. and the event starting at 7 on October 17th, 2019. And we hope that you will be able to join us. Tickets for the special live podcast event are limited, but they also include free food and a free drink. And since we have a hand in picking the food, we can tell you it's going to be great. And that's not the only reason you should come. Not by a long shot. You're going to put this on your calendar for two reasons. First, you'll want to hang out with other people who are fascinated by the application of behavioral science. Mm -hmm. And second, you'll want to attend so you can hear a live, in-person behavioral grooves discussion with Annie Duke. Annie is the best-selling author of Thinking in Bets, and she'll be on stage with a surprise guest that we've not yet announced. Annie is one of our favorite guests and a favorite author of ours. Her book outlines an approach to decision-making that is invaluable for both personal and business context. She's funny, insightful, and wicked smart, and we are certain that you will take away a new technique to improve your decision-making if you come to this event. So you should definitely join us. It would be awesome if you would join us in person, but if you can't, we're pleased to announce that Podbean is sponsoring our event, and they're going to make their new Podbean Live technology available. Wow. Podbean Live allows for streaming live events like this one so that listeners can get the full effect of the event while it's happening. We're very excited to have our very own podcast publisher, Podbean, promote the podcast public proceedings with passion. All right. I didn't think you could pull that off. Try saying that five times fast, though. Uh, I'm just, I got through it one time, so let's just go with that. <laughs> okay. So people, there are there are links in the show notes to more information on the event. But in addition to Podbean, we also have a gold sponsor in People Science. Absolutely. They're, they're terrific. Yeah. And so they are uh, bringing the behavioral science into the application of work and life and looking at why we do what we do. So, all right. More information can be found about both the event and our sponsors in the show notes. Absolutely. So please take a look down there. But right now, let's talk about this episode. We were lucky enough to meet our guest in a Minneapolis hotel while his husband was attending a medical conference at the University of Minnesota. We had a relaxed conversation, but got into some serious topics like the impact that data science can have when it's combined with behavioral science. Jim Gusha is the chief data scientist at Deloitte Analytics. He's using behavioral science for good, as they say, uh, to help people understand data so that they can make better decisions. Jim is a terrific storyteller, and he has a way of integrating a wide variety of disparate elements into the concepts that he's discussing. He's a really bright guy, and we love talking to him, so we think that you'll enjoy it too. Jim also shared how he got into behavioral science by reading a review for Michael Lewis's book, Moneyball, written by the Nobel laureate Richard Thaler. Now, if that isn't a great gateway drug into behavioral science, I don't know what else yeah, is. Yeah, that, that is a great way to get introduced. Absolutely. Right. So sit back with your favorite listening beverage and enjoy our conversation with Jim Gusha. Jim Gusha, yeah. welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you. It's great to be here. We are, uh, just for our listeners' sake, just to let them know that the audio is very different because we are actually recording in a Marriott courtyard yeah. overlooking the University of Minnesota. 
Yes. Not as glamorous as it sounds, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but enough. it's wonderful. And so we are excited to be here. We were lucky to have you in town. I'm so, lucky that you guys are interested. Yeah. Yeah. So this is this is fantastic. Yeah. So can we start with uh, a little bit about what you do? Sure. Because it doesn't necessarily fit with behavioral groups. Right. I mean, your job is not behavioral in nature. It certainly didn't start that way. Um, my, my title is U.S. Chief Data Scientist at Deloitte, so I'm a data science by, I suppose, by training, but, but not really. I, I mean, I have a Ph.D. in philosophy, and I started as an actuary. Um, but I kind of, okay. I, kind of <laughs> I, I, know, I know it's a cliche, um, but I, I, sort of, I sort of morphed. But the, the reason I became an actuary is that in my ignorance, I assumed that actuarial science was what we now call data science. That, that term data science didn't exist back then. Okay. So just kind of like entering the field from outside, from like this kind of philosophy background. I just wanted to do something scientific in the business world. And I sort of intuited that this is like a very data-rich, you know, kind of field. And, and really, a lot of people think that actuaries are the original data scientists. I'm, I'm one of them. In a, in a way, data science goes back 250 years, when, yeah. when, the, when, when, you know, when data was first used to price insurance contracts. Um, and so now, now that's being generalized. There's just data about all aspects of business and people's lives, which is one interesting connection with behavior, right? A lot of the, a lot, you know, people talk about big data all the time. And big is usually defined as being like high volume, high velocity, high variety data. But a lot of it, a lot of times B stands for behavioral because it's data about you. It's data about your actions. You know, you paid this bill late. You like this thing on the social media content. You stop watching the streaming, you know, TV series midway through this episode, but you binge watch this other series. All this stuff tells us a lot about your behaviors that, that can be used to make predictions going forward, maybe in very different domains. And there's a lot of controversy about this. So that's, that's one connection with behavior. Um, but yeah, but that's actually not how I first got interested in behavioral science. It was really, there's actually an interesting University of Minnesota connection with how I got interested in tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, tell us about that, because we sure. started to talk about that a little bit before, so yeah. I want to hear more. So this is, all right, so I, I first, I'd, I'd heard the names Kahneman and Tversky way back when I was in grad school in philosophy, but I never really investigated. I was doing philosophy of physics, so I never, you know, I just knew the names. I didn't really know much about what they were doing. So I was pretty ignorant, woefully ignorant, really. I first, um, I first learned about this stuff when I read a review of Michael Lewis's book Moneyball. Okay. Written by, guess, wait for it, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. <laughs> the the for, review was the written re- by Thaler and Sunstein. Correct. Okay. I was I was I was kind of like procrastinating at work one day, but this is kind of productive procrastination. Surfing the web in the afternoon, having my coffee. And I just read Moneyball. I bought it, you know, because I, I connected Moneyball with what I was doing as a data scientist, right? I, I was building algorithms to help um, underwriters at commercial insurance companies. Um, better select and price risks. And so I heard about Moneyball, which is about using data to help you know, baseball scouts make better hiring decisions. I kind of like made this connection. It's, there's an obvious analogy, right? But you know, that, So that was nice as far as it went. But when I read Thaler and Sunstein's review of Moneyball, I just had this like, you know, not minor, major epiphany that kind of changed my, the way I thought about my own career. It's like I, I'd, been thinking that, you know, that, uh, I'd been thinking about our algorithms as being valuable because I was such a good data scientist, because the data was so powerful. And sure, that may be true, but what was really important and what I was sort of neglecting was that the reason our algorithms were so valuable is because the ways humans make decisions are, is so suboptimal in a lot of settings. And this is not saying that people are stupid or, you know, a lot of times people criticize Kahneman saying that it's a very pessimistic view of human cognition. 
and I don't think that's fair. I, I think that it's, it's fair to say that our, you know, our brains evolved in a certain set of circumstances. They, they evolved to enable us to survive in the wild. They didn't necessarily evolve to, you know, help us make optimal decisions when we put on a suit and sit around a boardroom and make decisions, right? So, exactly. So, you know, you know, in the same way that my I need eyeglasses because I'm myopic, right? So eyeglasses help me see better. That's a human invention to help me extend my capabilities. Well, the predictive algorithms I build are kind of mental prostheses. They're eyeglasses for the mind that help insurance company underwriters, baseball scouts, hiring managers, judges, you know, um, doctors make better decisions. All right. So that and that was the kind of insight I got by reading this Thaler and Sunstein review of Moneyball. They're, they're, they're asking why could it possibly be the case that these highly paid professionals, these baseball scouts, whose sole job it was is to make this certain kind of decision in a high stakes field where a, you know, a lot of money was at stake, these people are being paid high salaries and it's data rich, yet they would make these suboptimal decisions. How could that exist? And I think they, the, the, essentially what they said was that it takes um, discipline and practice and you know, willpower to switch from simple intuitions to a careful assessment of evidence. And that's what was dramatized in the movie Moneyball. Yeah, right. right? It was like, you know, the, the you know, struggle. The, yeah, like Philip Seymour Hoffman's character was a real skeptic. And he's like saying, you know, you know I, I know this is a good baseball player. You know, and it's I like, can tell. I see, you know, I well, see it. I forget what that line was that he was talking about, but it was great. Yeah, know? exactly. No, it's, and it's just, you know, it's kind of like an overconfidence bias. You know, it's like, and it's, you know, your, 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 your level of confidence in, in somebody is not a, it's not a measure of statistical confidence, like, like we talk about in data science or statistics. It's more like a feeling, right? And, you know, and Thaler and Sunstein talked about very specific heuristics, like, like the availability heuristic. Yeah. You know, like, you know, we, we assume, you know, when, when, when you ask about what is the frequency of English words that end in ing, you give that a higher frequency than words whose second last letter is n, that sort of thing, right? And so, like, by analogy and insurance, if the last risk I underwrote had a certain kind of like um, frying machine in the kitchen and there's a bad claim associated with it, that claim could have been partly bad luck. But I, I recall that episode very, very vividly. And the next time I see a similar risk, I might not want to write it. Right. So it's like that's the reason why my algorithms were, you know, were, were so um, economically, you know, significant, right? That's that's the reason why they added so much value to companies. It wasn't just because the data was good and because I was a good data scientist. It's because I was we're, we're giving people a tool they can use to make better decisions to enforce a little bit more. Adding eyeglasses to the to the folks who were had had difficult seeing. No, that's exactly right. And so, yeah, I can't remember if it was the review or you know this got me reading and. I quickly learned that that you know one of Kahneman's forefathers was a psychologist here in Minnesota, the University of Minnesota, named Paul Meal, who back in the mid '50s wrote this kind of classic book called I think it was called Clinical versus Statistical Prediction, and he had a he had kind of like this Moneyball epiphany way back in the '50s, in his field, which is psychology, and he found I think it was and again I'm not an expert, so this is from memory, so you know, caveat to all of your listeners, but I, I think I think the first thing he looked at was, you know, who could you know, what would do better, what would be more a better way to um, diagnose people for schizophrenia? A clinician using his or her clinical judgment based on a lot of training and a lot of graduate school. And Many of years of work and interaction with lots of different people, all of that, right? Exactly. Or, you know, a 10-factor regression model, whatever it was. And, you know, it turned out the regression model could outperform the clinician. And then he started testing this in a lot of different fields, like, you know, which team is going to win the football game, right? There's a Vikings game today. You know, which, which, which wine has higher quality is, is going to be a higher quality wine. You know, you know, you know, you know, you know, which which patient is, is more likely to have this disease? And he, he said that in every single one of these studies that he surveyed, I think there are twenty or so studies. In each case, 
the algorithm did at least as well as the clinician. And in most cases, the algorithm outperformed the clinician. And so it's, and it's not that we want to replace the clinicians with the algorithms. It's just that in the same, you know, no, no more than you want to replace my eyes with eyeglasses. That's just kind of like this silly misconception about artificial intelligence. Um, but we just need this kind of help. And so the, that, that's when I sort of realized that this thing I was doing was going to explode. And this is going to like take over all areas of business. Wow. And, yeah. And so it's just a very interesting, you know. That, that's, a, that's a big leap. <laughs> I'm just thinking about your ability to have that aha moment. Uh, because of this information, I think it's remarkable. Well, it was Thaler and Sunstein. You know, it's like that review of Moneyball is really what what you know, was, was yeah. the epiphany. And, and when, by the way, I, I, the... I, I later learned that um, that Michael Lewis learned about the subject when he read Thaler's and Sunstein's review of his own book Moneyball. <laughs> that's what he, he wrote in the he wrote in the Undoing Project. That that, that that review is kind of what set him thinking about this stuff, and that's that's how he knocked on Kahneman's door and and, and, and started that whole process. Yeah. 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 Wow. And when was this? When? Well, I read the I read the review in 2004. The okay. review is called Who's on First. I think it was also um, published in the University of Chicago Law Review. Okay. But I read it in the New in the New Republic. Wow. Um, yeah. So that oh. that was that was a big epiphany for me. Okay. So you uh, you have an academic background. Mm. Uh, I mean, because you 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 went through a doctoral program. Yeah. Uh, as, do you think you would you characterize yourself as someone who looks at the world through a scientific lens? Yeah, I think I do. My PhD is in philosophy, and um, the, the, the specific subject was philosophy of physics and philosophy of science. Um, so I always think about things through a scientific lens. Um, and and I, you know, and I, I come at, I, I come at fields from outside. It's like I, I have double imposter syndrome, right? Because I'm a data scientist who does not have a PhD in statistics or, or computer science, right? It's a PhD in philosophy, and here I am, like talking to you guys about behavioral science. Like, what the hell am I even doing here? You're anyway? doing great. There is enough meat in the sauce. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. Okay. <laughs> I think I'm a lousy cook. What can I say? Um, but yeah, so I, I tend I tend to think about things from like kind of first principles, and sometimes that makes me kind of slow. But but um, other times it can kind of pay off because I might make connections that, that that might not occur to me otherwise. So, in in the world of business, yeah. I think that that we are often missing that scientific mindset, right? right? I think we we are in the the just go do it mindset in business. Have you run yeah. into that? Or, and, oh yeah. And what what kind of value do you think that Completely. scientific lens brings to the world of business because I think it's really important. Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know how articulate I can be, but you know, like my field is called data science, right? Yeah. And right now there's a lot of talk of this, this um, tagline called democratization of data science, which if you look at it in one way makes a lot of sense. But democratization of data science is basically saying, let's use kind of automatic AI machine learning tools to enable essentially novices to analyze big data and find patterns that we can find interesting. You know, it's like you, you can like, you know, you can take high school kids who are kind of prodigious or not even prodigious, but, you know, just like kind of intellectually curious kids, give them these really powerful machine learning tools and they can build algorithms that will classify cats. They can like label photographs saying this is a cat, this is a dog. Right. That's really, really impressive. And the idea of democratization of data science is that now we can take, you know, kind of people have gotten their MBAs and, you know, kind of people with good domain knowledge and start having them do data science, even if they've just been to a, like a kind of a code academy boot camp. And I actually think that that's kind of taking us in the wrong direction a little bit. I think it's very good to bring domain experts close to the process of analyzing data, but you don't want to lose sight of the fact that the operative word in data science is science, not data. <laughs> it's a scientific method. So th these tools are great if they enable the analyst to spend less time doing rote data scrubbing and data munging and kind of like pedestrian stuff, and more time actually thinking scientifically about where do the data come from, what am I trying to predict, 
you know, like what, what is our business goal and can I, can I translate this business goal into the design of some kind of an analytical exactly. project? And how can I use, how can I bring data to bear? And if you do that in, this, in a kind of naive, automatic machine learning way, like if you kind of outsource critical thinking to a computer, you might get things like algorithms that are biased against women. This, this gets us back to behavioral science, right? Like, you know, from Moneyball, you know, we, we know about Linda Babcock's and Iris Bonet's research, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, Moneyball, ironically, is a story just about hiring men. It was about baseball players. But we know that a lot of these heuristics that people use in the real world can be biased against females and minorities, right? And so if you, if you can bring data science to bear properly, you know, along the lines of Paul Meal, Daniel Kahneman, Moneyball, Richard Thaler, we can use algorithms to ameliorate human biases. But if you just take big data, right? A lot, you know, data about previous hiring decisions and correlate, you know, words in a resume. Success with with previous hiring decisions, you're never going to get past what that initial bias was. Yeah, the, the 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 implicit biases from human cognition are, you know, reflected in our decisions. Those decisions are encoded in data. If you use automatic machine learning and the democratized data science in a naive way to kind of extract patterns from that data, guess what, guys? You're going to be you're going to build an algorithm that kind of encodes a lot of those human biases and can amplify them if you're very naive about it. So there's a famous story about how data scientists at a big company discover this. And to their credit, they audited their own algorithm. They realized this. They never used it. But that's, that's, so that's, that's maybe a small illustration of how you need not just data, but science. And there's sort of an ethical component to it, too. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I, I think the technical term that you're searching for is garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> that's right. Thank you. <laughs> is that right? No, that's right. Well, that's Gigo. And there's also maybe Bebo, bias in, bias out. Bias in, oh, bias out. I, 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 I just made that up. I think, I, I, think, I think that's a keeper. I think it is a keeper. Absolutely. Uh, so... Uh, getting back to your work, so yeah. you become fascinated with the yeah. behavioral science side. Completely. How are you integrating it into into your work at Deloitte? So you know, early on, it was a kind of a talking point. To be to be honest with you, for, for many between that reading that Thaler Sunstein review in two thousand four till about I'm a slow learner, but until maybe two thousand twelve or so. God, it's a long time. I was mostly thinking about one of the three pillars of behavioral science: bounded rationality, okay, biased rationality. Yep. And I was basically using it as like a talking point, as like a way of explaining why what we're doing works. And I would kind of say, guys, it's not just big data. It's that we're using the right data to overcome human biases, right? And I think that's an important distinction. So, but it's a bit philosophical. Sometimes it would make a difference. Like there was one time when um, I was building an algorithm to help child support enforcement officers do a more efficient job of reaching out to non-custodial parents who are at higher risk of going into arrears and falling behind other payments. Okay. So that they could like improve their jobs. Rather than just being reactive, they could actually proactively reach out to people and prevent the bad thing from happening. Great. And actually I can come back to this when we get to nudge later on. But when I was I was actually at a very interesting um, child support conference for this all this all the heads, all the county level heads of of child support enforcement in this in the state. And I gave them this kind of eyeglasses for the mind metaphor. And I, th I could just see how they connected with that. Like, they're like, it, it just made it very clear that we're not doing this to replace you. And we're not doing this because there's something wrong with you. We're doing this because you're human. And like, you know, there's nothing wrong with me because I wear eyeglasses. And there's nothing wrong with a, with a professional using an algorithm to improve his or her professional judgment. And they're like, oh my God, this is great. I can actually use this to make my job more satisfying. I mean, and you know, you can generalize the saying that you can use AI to humanize work more generally. It's something we can get back to later. Um, so that's kind of the way I thought about this stuff for the first half of my career. More recently, 
it occurred to me that these other aspects of behavioral science, like we talked about bounded rationality, Thaler talks about the three bounds, right? There's also bounded self-control and bounded self-interest. Mm -hmm. It took me a bit longer, but I kind of connected that with data science. Um, and I, How so? Give us an, give us an example of, of connecting yeah. bounded rationality to data science. Sure, easily. And actually, I can give you an example outside of my own work. I can tell you how I came up with the idea. It was after the Obama was reelected. I read two articles in the New York Times. <laughs> I, I, I get all my ideas by reading these news articles, right? Um, I read two articles in the New York Times in close succession. One was about how the Obama campaign used big data, but behavioral data really, to reach out to persuadable voters. Right. So they didn't reach out to voters who were definitely going to vote or just very highly likely to vote Democrat. Because like, why would you reach out to somebody who's almost certainly going to vote Democrat? You're wasting your time. Let sleeping dogs wasting lie. Wasting your money, wasting your time. Yeah. yeah. What you want to do is reach out to people who you can make a difference with. Like people who could be persuaded to vote Democrat or might intend to vote Democrat but might not get around to it, you know, unless unless they're you know have given the right message. So that that's that's an interesting kind of data science nuance right there. And again, another another example of using science um, you, you know, thinking scientifically about the problem, not just using democratization of data science and pressing a button and just trying to naively make a prediction. You want to think about what are you trying to predict? Not not who's gonna vote, but who can be persuaded to vote. That's a very interesting distinction. And and were messages tested then as well? Well that th this is where the behavioral science comes in. The other article was about how a like, I think the New York Times called it a dream team of behavioral scientists um, informally advised the Obama campaign. I think Craig Fox was the leader of this coterie of data scientists. He's a, a behavioral scientist at UCLA, um, someone I think very highly of. And that got me thinking. So one of, well, I remember one of the examples from the article I remember reading about was the use of commitment cards. Okay. So, you know, you know, you know are you going to vote for Obama? And you say, yes. yes. And I walk away feeling very satisfied, like I've done my job. Well, really, that would be a missed opportunity. I would be, I would be more effective if I asked you to sign a, a pre-commitment card. Right. All right. Yes. All right. Well, why don't we sign this card? To, exactly. Uh, you know, and, and we'll get that. Uh, again, using those behavioral science principles yeah. that we understand what actually drives behavior. Because exactly. that's the big thing. It's that goal intention versus implementation, you know, you know, actions. Exactly. Yeah. So that intention action gap, that, that that's kind of metaphorical for the way I think about this stuff too. I think that organizations, they don't care about algorithmic outputs. They care about better outcomes, right? So in insurance, it's it's fine if I, you know, build a model that says that this risk is you know, safer better than that risk. But if you don't use that, if you don't make that decision, it's off or not. Or if, if, or if Paul De Podesta builds an algorithm for Moneyball and Philip Seymour Hoffman doesn't use it, again, you're not going that last matter. mile. And by analogy, you know, it's, you know, for these, so those are for thinking slow decisions. For an economic decision, you have to kind of take the algorithm and make the economically efficient decision. And there can be organizational biases to doing that, and, but you have to overcome that. But in these other applications, like voting behavior, the last mile problem, you know, bridging the gap between like the algorithmic output and the better outcome, is human behavioral, right? In this case, it's the intention action gap. Or if I'm working for a health organization or a health insurance company, what if the algorithm you know, flags me as being someone who might be at risk of developing a lifestyle-based disease like diabetes or obesity? Yeah. Again, you can't just give me information, you know, like you should eat this way, you, you do this. That won't change my behavior. G.I. So, Joe effect. Yeah. That, yeah. You, it, that, it, it, more knowledge isn't going to help you overcome it. Exactly. No, that, so in a business setting, you know, sure, knowledge, you know, giving people more information there, when there are economic incentives at stake that's a big piece of the puzzle. But when it comes to like human behavior, like purchasing behavior, voting behavior, health behavior, employee benefits behavior, public sector behavior, like you know, like the, the, the restaurant owner making sure his restaurant or her restaurant is clean, all these things, you know, 
it, it's not enough just to build the algorithm. Or building the algorithm, I'd say, is maybe helpful or maybe sometimes necessary, but not sufficient. To really yes. go that last mile, yes. you know, using behavioral nudge tactics to operationalize those algorithms can really add a lot of value to our algorithms. Yeah. So it's a little bit like you, the analogy I sometimes make is, you know, the salad tastes better if you put the salad dressing on it, right? The, you know, the data, the algorithms are the salad, but the dressing is like a small, maybe even a low cost added additive that just transforms the whole experience. Yeah. So that, that, that's the epiphany I had like circa 2013, 2014, that every, you know, that, that every organization that has a data science capability should also have a behavioral insights capability. So how are you using that? So how are you using that new yeah. found insight to, to the work that you're doing? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you one example. Um, and this is kind of early, this is right around the time I was writing my first article about this. Um, and it was an offshoot of our insurance work. So a colleague of mine, his name is Mike Green, one of my, one of my favorite colleagues, brilliant guy, um, got me on the phone and was talking about a project that we had just embarked upon for one of the US states. It was New Mexico. And it was an insurance problem in the public sector, this unemployment insurance. And um, the goal was to kind of lessen improper unemployment insurance payments. Okay. The idea is that if, if you lose your job, you're supposed to kind of log on to a portal every week and certify that, A, I'm looking for work, here's what I'm doing to find a new job, and B, here's, here's how much money I collected last week by you know, maybe driving Uber or you know, you know, you right. know, landscape, whatever it is. Now, the more you report, the less you're gonna collect from the state, so there's this kind of natural you know, temptation, perhaps, to you know, under-report your, your, your income. So the state asked us to build an algorithm um, to use whatever data we could, maybe you know, you know, demographic data, maybe web click data, um, to predict who's most likely to be collecting benefits improperly. And so we were on a call brainstorming different machine learning approaches to come up with a, a predictive classifier that's as accurate as possible, right? Natural thing to do. And here's an example where the behavioral economics comes in. It started with this kind of technical observation, which is that anytime you're going to build a classifier like this, there can be a lot of false positives. Right. If the overall, and actually this relates to a cognitive um, bias, it's called base rate neglect. It's, this is not intuitive to people. If the overall base rate is low, even if you have a very powerful classifier that might be 95% accurate and the overall base rate is 5%, the probability, you know, like think, think you're a doctor, right? Your, your, your disease, um, your diagnostic algorithm is 95% accurate. The disease has like a 95% base rate for the kind of person that you're, that you're treating right now. The person tests positive for the disease. You ask the doctor, what is the probability that this patient has the disease? The doctor might say 95%. Yeah. No, the answer is more like 17%. Yeah. And that's a Bayesian posterior probability. By analogy here with unemployment insurance, right? If we if we build this algorithm, you know the, the the highest scoring, the most risky people flagged by the algorithm, most more often than not are going to be collecting benefits properly, not improperly. So this is the last mile problem. If we use this algorithm to shut off benefits, we're going to be doing the wrong thing most of the time. And we our our algorithm, which is a good algorithm, could be what Kathy O'Neill might call a weapon of math destruction. Yeah. Right. So what I suggested is it's all it's it's not just in building the algorithm it's in what do you do with it right so it's, it's these are not always thinking slow decisions they can be thinking fast decisions so rather than use the algorithm to selectively shut off benefits let's use the algorithm as a nudge engine and you know hypothetically say you you've been collecting benefits for four or five weeks and you've been logging on every I don't know Tuesday morning nine o'clock saying I made a hundred bucks last week and then one hundred fifty dollars last week maybe in week five or six you log on on Saturday instead of Tuesday. And this time, you're not, you're not reporting $100, you're reporting $150. Well, 
or you, you say you're reporting maybe $650 instead of $150. That might take you into a higher risk category. If, if then you see a message for the first time saying, did you know that nine out of 10 of your neighbors report their earnings properly? It might just get you to introspect a little bit. Yeah. So we actually use Robert Cialdini's, you know, kind of social norm, norm yeah. nudge messages. Since since we are in a hotel room, we could you know think about the Cialdini study on uh, reusing reusing towels. towels that's a, that's rooms. exactly right. It's yeah. the same same principle. I mean, it's like most of the people in this room in this hotel right reuse yeah. their towel. And you know, of course, it's you know, it's also what the UK Behavioral Insights team used to to get taxpayers to to pay their taxes on time. So I would argue that this is what we today call an example of ethical AI. Right. It would be unethical AI. So, you know, an implication of this is that when you're thinking about algorithms and, and talking about ethical AI, we talked about biased algorithms earlier. So that, that gets a lot of attention as well it should. But I think what's neglected is it's not just the algorithms that can be biased. Also, what you do with it has a moral component to it too. So how do you act on these algorithms? And so, and so like very often, nudge can be a very... Um, you can generalize from this, but I think I think Nudge gives you a new set of tools that make it more likely that you're going to be able to find kind of pro-social, pro-person use, uh, uses of these kinds of algorithms. So I want to I, I want to extrapolate out on sure it because I think it's really interesting because you brought up you actually brought up the Obama team using some of that early yeah. uh, data science in the 2012 uh, yeah. election right yeah. and and getting those those potential democratic voters mm-hmm. that are on the on the fence to actually do that either on uh, the fence or either on the fence or maybe they just you know they, they just get stressed out on Tuesday morning they just forget to do it or they exactly. space out you know you know exactly move out to 2016 yeah and bring Cambridge Analytica into the into the fold never heard of it I'm yeah. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well if you haven't let me tell you yeah. <laughs> And, and again, there's this component of Cambridge Analytica yep. that is going in, right. having, having insight into yep. some personality components that supposedly, um, based upon your Facebook likes and dislikes, That's right. gets a, a big five personality profile of you down to understanding what is your most biggest fear yep. and various different things, and then using that in an election cycle to message you know, different participants. That's right. Is there a difference in your mind between those two? Because yes. you, you hear, yep. and let me hear you, your, your conversation here. I think it's a brilliant question. Um, by the way, I wrote an article about this, actually with my husband, Shantanu, who's here at the university today, six years ago. And in that article, it was about pro-social uses of, of big data. And this is, you know, behavioral big data, right? And we actually cited, at the time, this little-known study coming out of the Cambridge University Psychometrics Lab <laughs> <laughs> about how you know, they, they, they analyzed a sample of 58,000 Americans, and they had ground truth data about, are they Democrat or Republican? Are they gay or straight? Are they Christian or Muslim? What yeah. are the big five personality traits? And they said, we can predict many of these things with 80 or 90 percent you know, area under the curve accuracy using Facebook likes. Yeah. And it's, like, it's, it's sort of like a cautionary tale about, about how this data can go. I think, to me, the implication, just you know, kind of cutting to the chase, I think the implication of this is that a lot of the um, ethical discussions surrounding Nudge, you know, Sunstein has written about the ethics of influence. Thaler talks about when is it, you know, when, what does what nudging for good mean as opposed to nudging yeah. for evil? Yeah, sludge versus nudge. Sludge versus nudge, yeah. exactly. Um, that's that's a, a Don Moynihan, right? Yeah. He has that new book on administrative burden. He's mm-hmm. going to speak at our Nudge-a-Palooza in, uh, I believe, in uh, in uh, December at Georgetown University. You hear it here first. You guys should come and record that. Oh, we would, yeah. Let's do that. Yes, let's <laughs> yeah, definitely okay. do that. It's a date. Okay, anyway, Georgetown, December 9th. Um, 
Yeah, I think that a lot of the discussion around around the ethics of influence and the ethics of nudging and what does nudging for good mean, a lot of that should port onto these new discussions about AI ethics, right? Because a lot of AI is based on behavioral data. And you know, think about what I, you know what we were saying earlier about how you can use algorithms to extend people's capability. Yes. Eyeglasses for the mind, right? You know, so I can I can use algorithms to give people information they can use to make better decisions and be and be smarter, more effective professionals. That's better thinking slow through algorithms, like better living through chemistry, right? Better living through data science, better decisions, <laughs> beta, better decisions through data science. You have every corporate tagline right I know. there. Well, exactly. <laughs> <Better> living through <laughs> pharmaceuticals. <laughs> it's like a symphony of taglines. I love it. Um, so you know, and, and you can, and, and, you know, the, I think the implication of this last mile idea is that we can also use um, algorithms together with behavioral insights to help people make better thinking fast decisions, right? So maybe, maybe we can use algorithms in digital environments to help people nudge people to walk more. So we're doing we're doing a pilot study right now with the Penn Medicine Nudge Unit, where we're trying to use behavioral data collected through wearables to kind of you know get a sense of people's behavioral phenotypes and maybe we can figure out which kind of nudge is most effective for which kind of person to prompt them to walk more. Kind of on analogy with precision medicine, maybe there's a, a precision nudging concept we could do. Now that's speculative, who knows if that, if that exact idea will work, but it's an example of how we can use data together with nudges to help people achieve their goals. Well, so, it, you know, sorry to interrupt you, but Tim and I actually just grouped on this just, just <laughs> yesterday because we were talking about the, the, the next iteration, I think, in any behavioral change design component yeah. is this element of of making sure that that intervention that that you are at that part where it is a at that moment when you need it and, and we talked about yeah. you know this taking a pill right I could get a nudge to take a pill at eight o'clock every night that's great but what if I'm out at exactly. dinner at eight o'clock at night and well, I get no. the text message and you to, don't to have the pill, pill with you it, I don't have yeah. a pill with me so how can we use these things and so what I'm hearing you that's say right. is this precision nudging is is that component so I'm good I'm glad to hear that there are people doing that. Um, and I'm sorry to interrupt. No, I, I think it's exactly right. I mean, like the nudge of Palooza a couple years ago, like I think it was Wendy Wood. She she just uttered this phrase nudge 2.0, and or a lot of people are talking about digital nudges. You know, Shlomo Benazzi has this book called The Smarter Screen. I just yep. think that nudging in digital environments that are data rich, I call it the three Ds: data, digital, design. And design is in the sense of human-centered design. And you guys probably know this, right? The book Nudge was inspired by Don Norman's book, The Design of Everyday Things. Mm. So Nudge is like, I, I always, I don't, I, I don't like the libertarian paternalism tagline so much. It doesn't really, you know, I don't really grok on that. But I, I, I call it Don Norman-esque, um, human-centered design for choice environments. So, like, so just to kind of summarize, I mean, it's like we can, you know, it's better decisions through data, right? Mm -hmm. Both in a thinking slow sense and a thinking fast sense. Either way, you can use data together with, you know, you know, good explainable AI or good choice architecture to help people make either better deliberate decisions or better automatic decisions. But it, there's, a, there's a potential dark side. Like any technology can be used to help us or hurt us. Right. So we can use this stuff to extend our capabilities. Like at MIT Media Lab, they call they, they like to say extended intelligence instead of artificial intelligence, and I completely agree. I love with that. that. I love that term. I know. I'm a big fan of that as well. I am too. You know, we yeah. I interviewed Tom Malone from MIT Sloan um, last fall with my colleague Jeff Schwartz, and you know he talks about human computer collective intelligence. That's that's why I like to think about this. You know, it's like you know we have smart teams of humans and computers working together. We can use computers to extend our capabilities. But I think that example you gave earlier about you know using social media likes to make predictions that, that are then used to kind of um, 
determine interventions or messages that might kind of prey on my fears or on my prejudices, is that extending my capabilities or is that manipulating me for someone else's end? Yeah. Right? So that, that's the dark side. And, and unless, uh, there's another, I think all these things relate. There's another um, tagline that comes up a lot in AI these days called XAI or explainable AI. Okay. The idea is, is that, you know, if a, if, a do, if a judge is using an algorithm to make a parole decision, or if a doctor is making a, using an algorithm to make a medical diagnosis, the doctor or the judge needs more than just the number 42. You mm-hmm. need an explanation of why. You, you need a, a notion of how confident the algorithm is, and why is it saying what it's saying, so that I can make an informed decision about, right. should I listen to this algorithm? Should I ignore it? Should I complement it with some other insights that I might have, because I have human common sense and contextual awareness? And so you want, you want to, so I always say, we, you know, in the same way that nudges about human-centered design for choice environments, AI needs human-centered design. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to create tools that people can use to make better decisions. And so, you know, I'm making this analogy in the same way that we can nudge for evil using data to manipulate people. You can also unwittingly create AI that short circuits are, are thinking slow decisions too. And I think so, right, so, right. It, it, so human-centered design is, is part of it. And I think implicit, like when a lot of people are saying human-centered design, they're saying implicitly we're saying in an ethical way. And so, I, it, it, and now, this is the one philosophical thing I'll say, right? This is like the one thing I learned in grad school. This from, I, I took um, Kant's ethics from Chris Korsgaard, who's now at Harvard, and um, she was a John Rawls student. But, you know, it's, it's the Kantian categorical comparative, right? You know, it's like, you, know, you, you don't want, you want to treat people as ends in themselves, not as means to your end. So if I'm, you know, if I'm, you know, a, a tech startup, and I'm creating a wearable app that's digital, that's data rich and infused with behavioral design to help my customers achieve their goals of walking more and being healthier, I would call that ethical AI because I am helping people achieve their own goals as stated by them. But if I'm another company that's trying to you know, use you know, advertising to manipulate people in ways that they would not choose if they had unlimited self-control and unlimited rationality, then I'm, I'm using AI and data to prey upon human frailties rather than using AI to extend people's capabilities. And I, and I think this is consistent with the way Thaler and Sunstein talk about the ethics of nudge. You know, yes. they're, they're saying, they're saying yeah, it's, it's, it's good, it, nudging for good. And again, I, if, if I'm wrong, then please correct me, but it, nudging for good means we're helping people make the decisions they would make if they had unlimited control and unlimited rationality. That's the foundation. Yeah, that's yeah. the foundation. Now, I think there's, this is where it gets, this is, I think, in my mind, where it gets tricky. Yeah. Because there's that there's the definite evil component out here, right? You, yeah. Where you could say, oh, they're they're grabbing this information and they're they're using it in such a way that you're manipulating, you know, the yeah. the end user. And then there's the definite good, as you've mentioned, in you know wearables and you know helping them achieve their their self set goals. Mm-hmm. What happens though when you're using this component in a it might be murkier. And Tim and I had a conversation a long time ago now with with a with a group. I can't remember even the company, but they were using AI to look at temperatures hmm. inside of San Francisco in microclimates. In hmm. microclimates, yeah. mm-hmm. um, pairing that with some data they have about the individual, hmm. uh, and then sending messages about buying beer. 
um, because they, they, <laughs> because they there's a high they, correlation between the, the temperature and when someone is apt to and, and go out and buy beer. And different have different right. temperature right. ranges. And so, right. 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 you know, outside of just being creepy, right, you know, <laughs> this component of, oh, that my GPS, you're located in this area of town. And now, wow, it's it's 82 degrees there. You get a message of, you know, you can go to the, the store down the street and buy yeah. Coors Light, you know, and yeah. get a 10% discount yeah. on it. Well, and you could argue that if I'm going to go buy beer anyway, then maybe this is okay. Right. But it still feels incredibly creepy to me yeah. to, to think about we're going to nudge you right. at, at, at the point in time that the temperature hits the right place for me. That's right. And boom, that's now I'm going to get the I'm going to get the nudge. Yeah, yeah. So Tim might be 82 degrees. I might be 78 degrees, you right. know. So... I don't know. Those are those I know. gray areas. Where it, I think yeah. this gets to be such a... There yeah. is a moralism to ultimately underlying all of this. Yeah. Right? I That's mean, right. Because good and, and bad are still relative terms. Well, and a lot of times they, there are a lot of cases where they just involve kind of inherent trade-offs, and they, they involve things where like different reasonable people might come, might come to different conclusions, and so yes. yeah, that, and that's what you guys are saying, it right? They're saying it's their gray area. So I don't I don't know if I have a fixed opinion about this exact case. I would need to think about it a little bit more, but in general, you know, again, like I, I think this is like a you know kind of channeling the, the Kantian idea is that you want to kind of like. When you're thinking through, like, if I'm a startup company, this is my business model, right? I'm not, gonna, I'm not talking about this specific one, but just more generally, do I want to live in a world, you know, that's just completely infused with this kind of technology and this kind of marketing, where, you know, where all this data is being used to make these precision, you know, predictions and kind of influencing me in ways that I'm not really opting into and that I'm not really privy to, is that really the kind of world I want to live in? So th this idea is kind of like generalizing your action to like, well, what if everybody did it? Yeah. Is that the kind of, does that result in the kind of world we want to live in? And if the answer is no, that, that might be a, again, we're talking about heuristics, that might be a useful, you know, kind of like you know, ethical heuristic for to deciding. To think about this, if this gets ex extrapolated out to yeah. the vast majority of things, is this something that I would like exactly. for, for me? Exactly. Even in that perspective. It's a, it, was it Minority Report that had the, the movie where, you know, the, yeah. the advertisements change as right. you walk by, That's right. right? And all of those various different things. That's I mean, right. It, it's... I mean, that was a supposedly a dystopian kind of future perspective. Do we want that? I mean, is is that what we really want? That's, not a, that's not a dystopian future. That's a business model. What are you talking <laughs> about? A, that is a business model. I want to go back to your three Ds, uh, yeah. data, digital, and design. Yeah. Can you talk about those? Because I'm yeah. not sure if I easily can separate out what what those are standing for. Yeah. It's, the, the, the idea was that um, I'll, give you, I'll give you another example of data and digital. Like d data is like my, my early example, my earliest example as a data scientist was I, I told you guys before I started recording, I built a credit scoring algorithm for a big insurance company. And I discovered, and again, this is like early days of behavioral data, but it's kind of, I've been thinking about this for 20 years now. I started when I was 12, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say you don't, you don't look a day over 26. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's turn the lights on now. Uh, yeah, no, but what, what I saw firsthand was that your personal credit score is a stronger predictor of who's likely to crash their car, have a homeowner's claim, than a lot of traditional actuarial rating elements, big time. So just thinking about data, a lot of data is behavioral data. We can use this data to make 
surprisingly strong prediction in a, lot of, in a lot of domains, right? You just gave the example of using it to influence elections. My earliest example is building a credit scoring model for, for a big insurance company, and I saw that behavioral data, namely a credit score, is much more predictive of who's going to crash their car than a lot of traditional rating elements. So I've been thinking about data for a long time. Fast forward to today, the analog of credit scoring data is telematics data. People's cars are connected to the internet. You yep. are part of the internet of things when you're driving now. And so in, insurance companies can know a lot of fine-grained details about your driving behavior that can be used to make ever f more fine-grained actuarial predictions and segmentations, which may be fine, right? That's the kind of traditional business model of insurance, and that, that's the way insurance works, and maybe, maybe that's okay. But that's D. That's, that's the first D in the 3Ds, right? Okay. There's also digital. Digital is what's making all this possible, right? We have this digital revolution, right? It's one of the biggest, it's, it's changing everything about our, you know, our business world and our personal lives. Everything we do is digitally mediated now. So that, that's why this insurance company can, so you know, credit score is maybe the earliest example of this digital revolution where ordinary quotidian day-to-day -day behaviors leave behind digital breadcrumbs. And you can use those digital breadcrumbs to make surprisingly strong predictions. It took the insurance industry 40 years to figure out that these digital breadcrumbs about your bill paying behavior are also very predictive of who's gonna crash their car. That, that's a canary in the coal mine example of what's now ubiquitous, right? Because we're digitally connected, you know, we leave behind these digital breadcrumbs that, we, that can be used in all these ways. And we just talked about that can yep. be used in ethically dubious ways. The third D is design. And I'm going oh, back. Oh, oh, I, want, yeah, I want to interrupt please. you. Yeah. Because I'm still, because digital breadcrumbs still sounds like data. It is. Yeah, I'm just talking about a specific kind of data. So in, instead of data, you know, being, being cast off by, you know, like an, an RFID tag, you know, from a, you know, um, you know, a, a machine part. You know, so you can you can use data about you can use data about machine parts to predict when the part is going to fail. That's that's like one kind of big data. All I'm saying is that a lot of this big data that organizations use is really data about people. It's it comes from it, it, people. It's and behaviorally it's people. based. Yeah, it's behavioral it has data. a digital component because yeah. we're so so wired in today's my my understanding yeah, of this I, is that yeah it, you, you could have a record of car crashes right, which could be paid done through paper and you have a, your, your you know, car track history, but now you have telemetrics that says, hey, you break hard. And that's all digital information. Am I, exactly. am I talking no, about that, this that, right? And so you're getting, yeah. you're getting that digital information beyond just the, the actual behavior that we're actually doing. So that, I mean, that, right. and that's the implication of the social media-like stuff before too. Like the, these things that we just do in day-to-day -day life, um, they, they, they're, they're much stronger predictors, predictors of our future behavior than demogra traditional demographic traits, you yep. know, like, like what demographic box are you in, or what you say on surveys. Yeah. So I think, I think one, of the, one of the people who started talking about digital breadcrumbs early on was a guy named Sandy Pentland at MIT Media Lab. So I'm, I'm kind of using his tagline, digital breadcrumbs. But when I first heard him say it, it's, it it's completely reflected my own experience doing this stuff in, in, in the insurance industry and other places too. I mean, when I, when I built my credit scoring model um, for an insurance company, it occurred to me, Wow, I bet if this insurance company had, you know, supermarket club card data, we could use that club card data about people's shopping behaviors to predict are they likely to crash their car? Because it's behavioral. If you're a 16-year-old male motorcycle driver, that's demographic, well, you get high price for insurance, right? But if we know from your shopping behavior that you're a 16-year-old male motorcycle driver who reads Martha Stewart Living Magazine and only eats vegan organic produce, you're probably a safe bet, right? Because you're very deliberate. And you know we could use that to adversely select against our competitors. Yeah. So that, that's that's the that's the that's the you know that's the that's that's data in um, digital, right? It's like it's it's data, but it's coming through these digital media, and because it's this kind of like it's data about people's behaviors. It's just their automatic behaviors that digital media are capturing. We can make all these predictions that we couldn't make a few years ago. Yeah. 
So for me, the missing link that maybe is the missing link that enables ethical, ethical AI is this idea of design, human-centered design. And one, as, you know, one aspect of human-centered design is explainable AI. You know, it's like we need to take into account human psychology. We can't just tell people, here's the number. You need to explain why. You need to kind of take into account human needs when you give them an algorithmic output. But in a thinking fast setting, um, you know, think, think about going back to this um, insurance company example. They're capturing all this data about my driving. If we take behavioral design into account, we could use Robert Cialdini's psychology influence again to give something back to, to, the, to the people who generated the data. Rather than just using the data to kind of like determine their, their riskiness, we can actually give them information back about their riskiness. We can both inform them, but also nudge them to be safer drivers through digital media. Your driving is at, you know, uh, 60% of yeah. everybody else driving on the road. Here are some tints on how to get it up to 80%. That's right. Different things. Yeah, you, no, could, it's, you could have those types of interventions. That's exactly right. So then that would be inherently pro-social. The, the insurance company would have more customer touch points, so it's more customer-centric. It would be good for the driver because you're actually helping the driver achieve his or her goals, which is to kind of get around safely. And it's good for society. Mm -hmm. you, could, you could lower the... the so you, so the, these three things, data digital design, I think can motivate new business models and new types of products are inherently ethical. Which is the new wine in a new bottle rather than new wine in an old bottle. You got it. That, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So I just think that this 3D tagline, it's, to me, it's like a, a helpful tagline for kind of thinking through these things. You know, there's a new book called Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. Hmm. I admit I have not read the book. It's, it's, like a, it's like 800 pages long, I think. I want to read it, but I haven't had time to read it yet. <laughs> I, I have bounded self-control, okay, and bounded nationality. <laughs> I'm human with a capital H like everybody else, and I really do want to read it. Um, but, you know, I've been thinking along the lines, of, I believe, of what she's been writing about, and I, I think that if you sort of, like, pour the new wine into old bottles, yeah, you get maybe models of, you get business models and maybe you know, models of capitalism that, that might not be sustainable in the long run. But if you kind of think about human needs, which is essentially what Nudge is all about, thinking yeah. about human needs and, you know, human capabilities and how can we, how can we help people overcome their natural frailties, you're more likely to get ethical AI out of it. Is, is, We're is, is this an edit part? Is this what this is? Is, is this too abstract, guys? I mean, no, I, I mean, this is not too abstract at okay, all in okay, my mind. I okay. think this is this has been fascinating to me. Sure? I think there's... Okay. No, because there's there's some real interesting components here. And the, the, I mean, the data digital design lends itself into this whole component of thinking about where are we going in the future, yeah. right? So we can take this into the future and... I think there'll be many businesses that would probably take this and, and put that new wine into that old bottle. Mm -hmm. And and it's going to, it might get a new, like, hey, here's this splash. Um, but as you said, it's not sustainable. And I think then there's others who are going to be thinking about this in a whole new way. Yeah. And when you think about it in that whole new way, we have to take this new world into consideration. It's kind of this component of... You know what? The the solutions of the past, and this is corny, right? The solutions of the past aren't going to solve the the issues of the future. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I think about automation. Mm -hmm. I think about you know the component of how many people have lost their jobs um, because right. of automation, and right. and that 
th- right. that's uncorked. It's not going to stop. We're yeah. not going to be able to say, go right. back in time and say, right. let's fill these plants back up with human workers instead of these robots. Exactly. And, you know, let's, <laughs> no, you that's know, not going to happen. And, and you look and you extrapolate that out in the future and you look at trucking and you look at retail yep. and you look at accounting. Yep. You look at some of these things that, you know, you already look at, uh, you know, people go, oh, it's only the manufacturing jobs. No. You, uh, what's the tax, you know, TurboTax or whatever, where, hey, you just enter, you know, the, yeah. the computer does it all for you. Yes. They're, we're going to lose so many jobs that way. And yep. people, you know, aren't yep. going to be retrained into doing, you know, all those things. We have to think of a new way to answer that question. That's a great point. I, I completely, completely agree with you. And I, I think it's very analogous. It's almost, it's almost a different, different aspect of the same conversation. If we just kind of think in terms of the way we've always been doing things, we're going to lose, we're, we're going to, we're going to, do things that kind of like hurt the overall population, but we, but also we're going to miss a lot of opportunities. Yeah. Like a very, a very simple example, which I've thought about, and my, my colleague at Deloitte, John Hagel, has also used this as an example recently, is thinking about call center operators. Yeah. So like a very straightforward um, type of AI is chatbots, right? Yeah. And you can imagine, oh, great, if you're a business owner, like we can get rid of all of our call center operators, just replace them with chatbots. Yeah. Now, is, is that really customer centric? Is that really employee centric? No. And it kind of gets to the, you know, going back to the AI theme, it gets back to a kind of a, what I believe is a misperception about, about AI. Again, like, just think about the simple example of, you know, Paul Meal here at University of Minnesota yep. discovering a simple regression model can outperform a clinician. We're not saying we want to replace the clinician with a regression model. Right. Think, you know, generalizing from that, there are two different types of intelligence going on. There's one narrow type of intelligence, which is the algorithm. You know, intelligence is just the ability to achieve a goal. Here, the goal is to make a diagnosis, right? The algorithm you know, can achieve very simple goals, like maybe it can automate simple diagnoses. Yep. But th- that goal is better achieved by the human working with the algorithm. This mm-hmm. kind of idea of an extended intelligence or a human-computer collective intelligence. So, you know, so the, the, the general principle is that you know, algorithms are good at some things, humans are good at others, but they're complementary forms of intelligence. Right. They have complementary capabilities. So yeah, chatbots can absolutely handle simple calls. And like if I call into you know, an airline saying, hey, you know, is my flight on time? Yes, your flight is on time, automated. That's great. That, that's, that's, that pleases me. It's faster than a human could do. Right. But what you should do is use that to free up the humans to use common sense and humor and empathy and spending more time and not not saying humans, you have fifteen seconds to get this person right. onto the you know off the call. Right. No, now you have that ability to be a human with another human. Right. And let's spend the amount of time necessary, and you're not being ranked and rated on. You know, I got through thirty four calls in this past hour. That's right. Right. No, you know. that's exactly it. So it gets me on kind of Taylorist command and control workplaces. So it's a more human-centered form of management, but it's also more customer-centric form because you're creating new value for customers. Yeah. And it's, I think it maps onto going back to Paul Meal's domain of medical science, right? Same thing with doctors. You don't want to use algorithms to replace doctors. And there have been like recent oh. prominent examples of AI researchers research, research saying we shouldn't train um, uh, oncologists anymore because deep learning algorithms can do a better job of flagging cancerous tumors and x-rays. But I think Eric Topol has a new book. Again, it's on my list. I'm yep. going to read it, I promise. But, no, but he's basically saying AI can give doctors the gift of more time with patients. So it, it's kind of going what to, to what you're saying about how if we use creativity and really think about what human needs are, think about the nature of these algorithms and how they can complement us rather than short-circuit us. And think about the nature of the work. And right. Think about how do we as humans, A, want to interact with others, both from a, an employee perspective, yeah. and B, a customer perspective. Right. And you can create, uh, you know, I'm not saying a utopian world, but you can you can definitely cr- get out of that Taylor kind of 
you know, how many widgets am I producing today yeah. as my only measure of success? Why, why yeah. is it so hard to convince business leaders to, to make those steps, to, to go in that direction? I think a lot of times, well, you know, again, it's, 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 a lot of this is uh, pure effects. So a lot of this is going back to Cialdini. I mean, if everybody is talking in terms of using AI to replace workers, you're just not thinking along these lines. And the yep. person who says something, you know, Cass Sunstein a few years ago wrote a book on groupthink. Um, and if, if everybody is kind of saying one thing and you have a different thought, you sort of self-censor that because you're like, well, they must know something I don't know yeah. or I'll just sound like a weirdo if I say this kind of thing. And so it's, it's kind of hard to overcome those kinds of things. You know, it's like, you know, that's why there are kind of, you know, fads in businesses, I think, too. Um, but also there's this new group at Stanford called this Stanford Human-Centered AI Initiative. Okay. And I think one of the points they make yeah, I've been thinking about human-centered AI in recent years, too, as you can kind of tell, right? Like, we need to kind of bring human needs and kind of human... We need to kind of start with human behavior yep. and build AI around that rather than say, build AI and hope that humans conform, right? That's the basic idea. But, like, one of the points these Stanford human-centered AI people make, it's called Stanford High, is we need to bring more diversity into the AI field. Mm. So this is a, more of a specific thing that what you're talking about, but we don't want to just have computer scientists. We also diverse have people. Do, do, what, do, define diversity, please. Good question. Yeah, I think people with more diverse backgrounds, people from you know different kinds of um, walks of life, maybe, but also people trained in different fields too. So you know, like I, I, I'm hoping that what's coming out of this conversation is that, we, that behavioral scientists have a role to play in developing AI technologies. Well, this and, is exactly uh, Carnegie Mellon with their social yeah. and decision sciences. A group that yeah. department is mathematicians, astrophysicists, economists, psychologists, yeah. all of them in the same group solving problems together. Count me as a fan. No, I, I think yeah. that's I think that's that's exactly what we need. And, I, and so I think that a lot of these kind of like maybe less than desirable business models come from kind of monocultures of mm -hmm. thinking. And I think if we've got people, you know, with you know kind of you know different scientific perspectives, different disciplinary perspectives, but also just different you know kind of you know backgrounds, we're, we're more likely to get sustainable um, technologies. Right. Yeah, diversity is such a, an important part of all of our growth. Yeah. Right? I mean, and, and historically, I, I just think about how uh, tribes got stronger when they brought people from other tribes in. That's right. You know, so it, we have a rich history in in doing well with with having diverse skills and and a, and a bunch of things. But and yet there is such a tendency to resist it. As yeah. Well. No, I completely agree. Did you want to go to music? I'd love to. I, I can tell by your, your body. You're, you're going to music whether I like it or not. There you go. There is enough meat in the sauce. I'm just going to just say that again. Um, yeah, so let, let, let's talk a little bit about music. You uh, would prefer to listen to music that was recorded or happened before the 1970s, before yeah. the 1980s, before the 1990s. I'm right? kind of a man out of time. What can I say? Yeah, th that, yeah You and Tim can have a whole conversation because... You're both in the same boat. There but you go. but uh, where I, I tended, I tend to cling to, or am drawn to music uh, that was written in the sixty, you know, fifties, sixties, seventies. You go back further with with classical music. Tell us about some of your your interests in, in classical music. I, I, I like a lot of that stuff too. By the way, I'm a big Bob yeah. Dylan fan. I like Van Morrison. I, none of this makes oh. any sense. I mean. I, you know, I'm, I'm a gay guy, and I'm not, not, not old enough to remember those guys, but I'm just a fan of that kind of music. Leonard Cohen, I, I just like all this kind of stuff. It doesn't make any sense. You know, again, I'm like the 16-year-old male motorcycle driver who, <laughs> who is a vegan. Yeah, 
Caribbean and, and yeah, and, yeah. And it doesn't it doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, I I didn't I grew up with music in the '80s and I was kind of like uh, appalled by it. You know, I, I look <laughs> I, I, I look back on it now and it's, it's kind of kitschy and kind of fun. But at the time, I was just like revolted by it. I, I, I and I'd wish I'd been born to you know to live through the '60s. But it's, <laughs> wow, it's, we are there's something very simpatico about that. We're grooving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love we're that. grooving. Um, we are grooving. But I, I also love classical and jazz music. You know, yeah. I was lucky enough to go to a liberal arts school and one of my best friends in college, David McDonald, who's a, com- a composer at Manhattan School of Music. He introduced me to early 20th century avant-garde music like you know, Schoenberg, Berg, Webern from the second Viennese school. So uh, I, I love, I love you know, lots of classical music, especially chamber music. Um, you know, my idea of a, pers- a perfect musical day is going to sound kind of weird, but I, I lived in London for a year and I love going to Wigmore Hall, which is one of the best places in the world to hear chamber music. And whenever I'm in town, I try to go to their Sunday morning concerts and just like hearing a Dvorak string quartet or a Schumann string quartet or something on a, on a Sunday morning at Wigmore Hall is my ideal musical moment. Maybe, maybe that evening hearing VJ Iyer play at a jazz club, that would be for me a perfect musical day. So why, why do you think you like uh, the, the smaller, uh, the, the quartets, the chamber music settings, you know, smaller bands rather than, than you know, the big classical uh, full-scale orchestras? I have no idea, and I'm just going to speculate. Um, I, I read a book by Susan Cain a few years ago called Quiet, and it's about introversion. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a popular book about introversion and uh, kind of dim memory, but I think she sort of like reframed introversion towards um, this idea of the HSP, the highly sensitive person. Yeah. I think you cited research, I'm forgetting the name of the, of the psychologist she cited. Um, but, you know, highly sensitive people are in particular very sensitive to sound. And, you know, introverts very often have a hard time navigating social situations where there's a lot of background noise. You know, it's just very hard to process out other conversations and focus on one person. I, I, I feel that a lot. Maybe there's something about that with me too, where I, I can I can more easily embrace kind of smaller scale musical mm. events rather than huge bombastic symphonies or huge rock concerts. I'm not really sure. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I don't know. I just tend to gravitate more towards like small jazz ensembles, chamber orchestras, small venues, that kind of stuff. More intimate types of music. Folk music is supposed to you know very bombastic electronic music. You know. Uh, so folk music, yes. Um, EDM, no. Not really. Not, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, not my thing. <laughs> no. It's yeah. like, so it's, it's more, I guess, I guess uh, you know, it's a personality thing that kind of trumps my demographics. You know, maybe I should like you know, house music, but I never did. <laughs> that, that, that's okay. You also mentioned Schoenberg, yeah. uh, this, uh, which I tend to associate with kind of darker uh, uh, musical themes. Um, Maybe, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I, I, I don't think of it in terms of being dark. I just think of it in terms of being very interesting. And austere. Yeah, austere. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. I mean, it's 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 you know the other thing is that like you know like Walt Whitman, right? I contain multitudes. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't want to oh, listen yeah. to Schoenberg on a bright summer morning in, in <laughs> Minnesota. You know, right? right? Like right. actually, when I when I was in when I was in um, Pittsburgh a few weeks ago, uh, Deloitte sponsored a class that Linda Babcock was leading for their new behavioral uh, science major at, at uh, Carnegie Mellon. I was staying with friends in Pittsburgh. And I was streaming the Wonder Boys soundtrack, ah. and it was kind of like I just loved almost every single song on the Wonder Boys soundtrack, and it just captured Pittsburgh for me because the movie Wonder Boys was filmed in Pittsburgh, and so I was just having this kind of like, you know, kind of Proustian moment thinking about you know so that that movie and just kind of like grooving on, on in Pittsburgh. So I was listening, I was streaming that as I was walking down the streets in Pittsburgh. So it's kind of like I will listen to Schoenberg, but maybe at a certain place in time, maybe like on a there's context. Yeah, context like, matters. Like, like on, a, on a moody. 
fall night, you know, you know, walking yeah. around some town in the Northeast, maybe I'll listen to Schoenberg. But, you know, on a bright summer day or a spring day in Pittsburgh, I'll listen to the Wonder Boys soundtrack. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's all context. That's good. Could you leave us with um, three tips for someone who is interested in getting deeper into um, the application of behavioral science in whatever field they're working in, whether it's data science or whatever? Hmm. What, what would you say to, to a listener that that you could say, okay, here's three things that you, sh- you could do, you could read, you could yeah. you know, pursue. Well, listen to this podcast for one. This is terrific. I've listened to a lot of your prior episodes. I think they're terrific. Uh, but but I, th- I think that's the point. It's like th- this stuff has been popularized. I think the reason why Kahneman wrote Thinking Fast and Slow was to change the way people talk about things. Yeah. So that people are less likely to pour you know, new wine into old bottles, right? Um, so yeah, reading books like Thinking Fast and Slow, M- Misbehaving is just extremely entertaining, Nudge, you know, all these books I think are really, really helpful. Um, listen to podcasts. I think kind of like using common sense, you know, like, so like think, thinking about your own work and, you know, trying to like learn about these principles and think, you know, how, how can it change the way I do things? So like if I'm a data scientist, maybe I can use this to, you know, create more pro-social human-centric AI. If I'm an HR person, maybe I can use behavioral economics principles to rethink our management tactics, you know, away from... Hiring, how we hire, you know, various different pieces. Hiring, yeah. or think about administrative burden. Like, how much of HR is tied up with paperwork, you know, right? And it's like, if, if, if you actually think in terms of behavioral science, I mean, just, you know, don't get bogged down in the details. Just think at the high level. Oh, wait, this is what we've learned about human nature. How does that change the way I should do my work, right? Um, so, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's helpful, but that's just, you know... No, that's great. That's my journey, yeah. No, I think that's fantastic. Thank you. This has been highly, highly inf- informative. And, fun. Uh, fun. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I enjoy this. I should come to Minneapolis more often. You should. Jim, you should definitely come to Minneapolis more often. We could, we could, we could do this again. But thank you so much. We appreciate uh, you being on the show. You bet. My pleasure. Okay. Cool. All right. Just loose. Grooving. Are we ready? Yeah, let's groove. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavior Grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our eyeglass-wearing minds. (laughs) Wow. I'm just, I love that because Jim brought that up in such a cool way, this whole idea that, of course, we would get eyeglasses for our eyes because our vision isn't perfect. So why not fix our minds with algorithms? It's a really simple model and a really compelling idea. Yeah. If if we are not making the best decisions and we have a tool that helps us make those better decisions, why not use it? Right? Yeah. Which uh, uh, guests like Annie Duke you know, are, are trying to help people make better decisions with thinking in bets. This idea of, here's some tools to help you make better decisions because you're just like your eyes. Eyes, they're fatigued. They have biases. There's problems. There's you know troubles. My eyes, my eyes have biases. Well, my, uh, <laughs> emotional biases. Oh, that would I guess that would just be cognitive. Uh, yeah. No, but, but I, I exactly what you're saying. And there's there's something really nice about that easy to understand metaphor. But there's a trouble. I have trouble with it also. Okay. I'm concerned that uh, that it's um, it's saying that we could. The, the behavioral science would be the same as eyeglasses in terms of how we get there. And that's not how it works. Like if, if my eyes are bad, I go to the eye doctor and I say, Hey, I think I need glasses. I'm having trouble reading. And the doctor says, Oh, well let me, let's try and prescribe something. But I don't go to uh, when I'm trying to sign up for insurance 
uh, and see 20 options and I'm overwhelmed, I don't say, you know, can, you, can somebody just give me an algorithm to make this easier? The nudges that are created that are put into the behavioral science to help people make decisions are often unconscious. And so I think that there's a difference between this voluntary side of, I need eyeglasses, and, and a cognitive awareness of, I need eyeglasses, and so I'm going to go get them to help repair me, versus the, the nudge that is, that is happening on a subconscious level, even though, you know, libertarian paternalism included here, we get to make our own decisions, but we know that nudges are extremely powerful and potent in the way right. that they impact us. Yeah, so choice architecture, nudges, all of those factors impact the decisions we make much more than we, we realize. And so what I think I hear you're saying is eyeglasses are something that we ought, we, we choose to to get or not get, and, and we make that from a very conscious decision. These eyeglasses for the mind, sometimes these nudges that are in, in put in place are done by behavioral scientists or other people. And yes, we still have a choice given how nudges are typically used. We do. But they're not necessarily something that we have a conscious, that we, we understand that the nudge is in place, that we are aware that we are being, uh, that we're having these eyeglasses put on us to help us make these decisions. And we may not want those eyeglasses. We may want to have the full variety of various different things. Or live our life in a in a cocoon and or, not being aware of all the, the true options that are out there. And you can say that, but again, but but the this goes back into the whole thing about like, oh, choice architecture is bad because you're leading people down the road. And it's like, no, choice architecture is just saying, look, the way that we structure the choice is we, we understand how it will typically we, you know, end up. But you still, regardless of if you put it in there purposely or not, you're still doing choice architecture. There is always going to be, if you have to choose between A and B, if you put A first and and B second, that has an impact. If you put B first and A second, that has an impact, right? If one is pre-checked and one is not pre-checked, those have impacts. And doing that purposefully and doing it ethically is something I think that's important. And and ethics uh, has, has been a theme for many, many episodes for us. We absolutely adhere to uh, supporting ethical use of all these things. I think about our conversation with Bob Cialdini, and, uh, and he's absolutely focused on it. Many, many behavioral sciences are focused on the ethical use. Brian Ahern gave us a great definition about how you can't just be in your own self-interest. It needs to be in the in the best interest of someone else. Exactly. As, as well, which I think is really cool. At the same time, there is still a subconscious act that is happening. Mm-hmm. There, you know, uh, if I go into the hotel room and the the message on the uh, on the shower stall says, uh, by the way, 75% of the people that stayed in this room recycled their towels, that's going to have a bigger impact on me subconsciously than would you please recycle your your towels. Right. So moving on to, to our conversation with Jim. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so t- this is really interesting because I think this is this is this is the part where the the tools that we have today with nudges and with everything um, are are super powerful or they can be powerful. And to that point, we can use them ethically. And, and there are some people that maybe maybe don't use them as ethically. Absolutely, that's entirely possible. The the combination of behavioral science with data science. Yes. Lends itself into this 
whole nother realm of the ability to influence people's decisions. Because we are now getting to the point where when we marry those two things together, we have such greater insight into what moves you or what moves me or what moves you know Sally down the road that we can customize those nudges such to the point where is it really, is there really a choice? Is it so persuasive that there isn't, so persuasive at a subconscious level that, yes, while we think we have the illusion of choice, do we actually have a choice? And that's where it gets really scary to me and interesting. And, and he brought up an interesting piece about where he's talking about the behavioral data that we have. We are going, we are now getting information on Facebook likes. We are getting your your grocery store purchases. We are getting your wearable component. Your iPhone tracks how many stairs you do. You don't even know it, right? It's like looking at how many steps, how many this, all of that data can be compiled, cross-tabulated, looked at, and applied with a behavioral science lens to it. And, you know, some smart people could really be at this point of saying, hey, we're gonna we're gonna make people do X. And, and that is happening. I'm sure that that is happening, right? And uh, so some are doing it for good. Uh, I think about this this new app uh, using behavioral science to help people lose weight, Noom. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they are very open and very intentional and very focused on using behavioral science nudges to engage people in the in behaviors that will lead them to lose weight. Yes. So again, great ethical applications, but it does beg the question just because we can, should we? Yeah. And, uh, and I also want to get back to what Jim said about behavioral science really is, is on the forefront today. Big data is huge and we need to pay attention to that. And with bigger data, it's possible for us to make better decisions, but without a behavioral science lens, we're going to be missing out. The, the, the possibility exists that we're just going to look at the data and not take into consideration the beha- the actual behavioral implications yes. of making decisions from this. Yeah. Uh, and that could lead us astray to make just erroneous, erroneous choices. Well, and, and, and the whole component about uh, Bebo. <laughs> bias in, bias out. I love that oh, component, that was, that right? Was, that so good, that yes. I think is a really... Key piece, and and if you do look at just the data, right? If you're just looking at the data, it's I think it's harder. It, it, I don't think it's impossible, and I don't think that data scientists are probably looking at this and saying, "Yes, we we understand that biases in also can lead to biases out." But I think that behavioral science lens can help in identifying some of those biases as well. Yeah. Um, before we we go too much further, I do want to. We talked a lot about bounded rationality. Oh and, yeah, and, yes. and so just for people who who may not know what bounded rationality is, bounded rationality was a concept first developed by um, um, Herbert Simon back in I think the 1950s. Yeah, uh, Carnegie Mellon. He was a Carnegie Mellon guy, uh, but he was an economist, a, a psychologist who talked about bounded rationality from an economic perspective, where. Economists had said, wow, we, we make decisions in a, in a rational way to, to maximize our utility and all this other stuff. And what he said is like, well, we do it in a bounded rational way because we're always limited by cognitive ability, the information that we have, the time that we have to make a decision, a variety of other factors. So it bounds, it, it kind of limits the amount of rationality that we can put into place. And, and we've 
and which is a really insightful component. And actually, is is if you think about behavioral economics in in its sense, it it really is a forerunner of behavioral economics. In Absolutely. Saying that, Absolutely. You know, it's not predictably irrational. It's just saying that we're bounded in our rationality. And so we make decisions to satisfy usually as opposed to maximize, right? So we is is good enough. And so that's a really key piece of this whole conversation. Absolutely. And and, and the way that he ties it into these uh, these additional elements of a bounded self-control. And bounded self-interest. I thought that was really interesting that he bring those up, that he brought those up. Yeah, and so thinking about that, and thinking about how we make our decisions, and how do we make those components around? Hey, my self-control is bounded as well. I would love to have full self-control, but I don't. But we don't because we have things working on our subconscious level. We have time constraint. We have all of these other factors, right? right. Uh, you get that dopamine release when you see that candy bar that's in front of you. And yes, I know I shouldn't eat it, but wow, that's acting at a subconscious level on my my wants and desires. And damn it. I instantly I, start rationalizing, well, you know, I did have an apple this morning, and, <laughs> and I'm probably going to have a salad for dinner tonight, so I'll probably be good. Yeah. So <laughs> all of those factors come into play as we think about why we do what we do, right? And that piece I thought was really interesting from Jim's conversation. Absolutely. Um, can I ask you a music question now? Of course, because so, you will regardless if I say yes or no. <laughs> well, so uh, so I've been reading uh, Rockonomics uh, right now, a really wonderful book, and I'll, I'll link it in the in the show notes. Um, but there's a couple of, of, of things that, that were pointed out by the author that really struck me. One is that the percentage of the population that identifies themselves as being involved in music you know, like completely professionally full time or or sort of the the I've got a day job kind of a musician is about the same today or in 2017 as it was in 1977. Okay. So about the same percentage of people say that, but the distribution of of revenues went from like in, in 1977, 80% of the revenue within the entire music community went to about the top 30% of performers. Okay. Today, 80% of the revenues go to about one tenth of 1% of all the performers. So the Beyonce's, the Kanye's, the, Drake. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They, they own it. Taylor Swift, they own the business. And so what I'm curious about is with all this, but, but there's also more music available, right? You know, what do they say? You know, Spotify, you could listen to every, if you listen to every song that it would take you 64 lifetimes or something to, to get through it all. Okay. So it's in, insane. With, with this concentration of wealth, do you listen to more artists today than you did, let's just say 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Hmm. Or fewer artists today? Is is your listening more concentrated today, or is it broader today? Good question. With just a quick reflection back in my head of remembering what I listened to 20 years ago, which is faulty as we know, as most memories are, and mine right. may be more faulty than most. <laughs> but, Get in line. <laughs> but I would say I listened to a wider variety because of the ease of access mm -hmm. because i am not going out and having to purchase a a cd or an album of all of these people and paying 10 to 20 dollars for for that not knowing who it is or what it is 
and I can just stream that and go, oh, that looks interesting. Let me let me test that, mm-hmm. and I like it or I don't like it. I think that lends itself to a larger experimentation of different musical uh, genres and styles and various different pieces. That being said, I find myself coming back into my ones that I tend to yeah, well, like, and right? we have I those. Mean, my, yes, of course. My, my Your Flora favorites. Cash, my Julia and, and Angus Stone, Stone, you exactly. know, all of those that I'm looking at my playlist, if I was to look at it, you know, and I go, well, which do I listen to every night? Well, I listen to these three, you know? Yeah. And I don't really get out now. Granted, within there, there's some variety, but still. that So yeah. it's, a, it's a mixed bag. So uh, you're you're testing more music, mm-hmm. but you're but because you're not buying it as as we because we almost never buy music anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, very few people buy music these days. Uh, you're not committing to it, and you're not committing to the possibility of what might happen. You know, when when it was an LP. You heard one song, and you went and you bought the LP, and you discovered through listening to the vinyl, uh, you know, eight other songs that were like, "Wow, I didn't." That's so cool. There was a sense of discovery and challenge that went with that. Well, and and I think music also has this component that the first time you hear something, some music you just immediately gravitate to. Yeah, some, some music in, in part because it's just sugar, and you just it's just that instant dopamine hit. You just can't not like it. But some music requires multiple listenings to, right, right. to to do that, which I had this conversation with my son last night. We were talking, he was talking his music and we were list, we were at a restaurant and the restaurant was playing great eighties music that I just you know, was like, yeah. say, this is the best music ever. Def Leppard, like, Metallica. No, 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 no. It was, it was not that. It was, anyway. It was, oh, it was it, good music. It was The Cure. It was, you know, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen. It was some, okay. some you know, the, the new age, new wave music that I listened to. Okay. Anyway, uh, but it also had some Irish kind of, you know, rock and various different things from the 80s. And, like and AOR and... I don't uh, know who exactly Shinedo it was. Connor and so no, it was more of the anyway. All right. Long story short, my son Quinn said, I can't tell that it was the Irish rock apart, right? Oh, right. I can't tell one from the other. Right. And I go, I get that. It's kind of like me and your rap music, you know? <laughs> you put one song and then you play another song, and I couldn't tell you if it was different or not. And so, it, but we, we both realized, we said, well, it takes multiple listenings to. And then you can start to discern yes. those differences within that. And I think that is a really case of having that LP where you listen to that, hey, it's the it's the single, but then... What's the it, second it track? Was, there was a fr- the- well, there's friction of going over to the LP and picking up the, the needle and pulling it off and getting a whole different, you know, and to put a whole nother record on... Oh man, you just it just just listen through to the end and listen, all of a sudden listen the whole that side, second yeah. song, you know, wow, that's actually pretty good. And and you know, that fourth or fifth song, all right, after a few listenings, you you get that. So Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So um I, I don't know. I just I just find I find it interesting. Well when looking at the industry, the music industry from an economic perspective, it's changed dramatically. Uh and, and I'm just wondering how it influences you know, whether or not that's reflected in your listening habits. Yeah. I think, again, to that point, I think I am more experimental. I don't know if I get as deep into some of those experimentals. And the other sad thing about the the component of today is that I will know songs 
but I don't necessarily like I will recognize a song, but I don't necessarily recognize who that artist is because I'm not looking at the phone to actually see who is playing on that playlist, right? So I'm listening to an Angus and Julia, you know, playlist on my on my phone and a diff another song comes in and it's a I like it, I know it, I recognize it, but I'm not I, I haven't purchased the album. Well, I'm not listening to the radio where they go, and that's that's, you know, Bon Jovi with a new well, whatever. But you did know? you did you used to? Do what is that different from your behavior in years past? Well, but I think it in or years is it, past, is it, is it, it the was, environment? It, is, in years past, it was on the radio where uh, they yeah. would come in and they would say who that is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or you would be at a concert and somebody, the opening band or whatever it would be. I don't know how you, you know, again, how did we find different music back before we could just, you know, stream something and they would play something else and you go, oh, that's good. Or, you know, you just do something. Social influence was a, was a much more... I, well, I shouldn't say it's much more, but it, but it certainly had a powerful impact when you weren't listening to as much, when you didn't have access to as much music in the mainstream as, yeah. as we have now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Thanks. Well, Thanks. No, thank you. Yeah. Okay. And thank you, listeners. We appreciate you listening in. We always do. And uh, listen to us next week. Mm-hmm.